If you have your Bible with you, you can open to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And then we will skip from Matthew 28 over to Luke 22. As we open with God's word and then go to him in prayer one more time, or yet another time. This is uh, the fifth of a six-part series on our corporate worship together, what it is that we do and why we do it when we gather together on Sunday morning. So we started with, uh, in the first uh, sermon, talking about the call to worship. What is the biblical basis for that? Why do we have a call to worship that starts our service off? We talked about prayer, the fact that we pray together, that we sing together, that the word is preached regularly. And here, this week, we're going to be talking about the ordinances, which we'll define here in a minute, or more commonly known as baptism and the Lord's Supper. So using these two passages in Matthew and Luke sort of as a baseline, we'll read this and then we'll pray. We'll work on some basic definitions to establish and then dig in a little bit deeper to show the gift that the, ordinance are, the ordinances are to Christ's church. So in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. This is after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection. Now he is about to ascend back to his Father in heaven. And in Matthew 28, 18, we read, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And from Matthew 28, if you'll go over to Luke, chapter 22, Look at verses 19 and 20. Luke 22, 19 and 20. This, of course, is before Jesus' death and resurrection. This is the Lord's Supper. Listen then, Luke 22, 19 through 20. And when he, that is Jesus, when Jesus had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to grope around in the dark, not only in our uh, sin and hard-heartedness, but even in rescuing us by the work of your Son and the power of your Spirit, you have not left us to grope around in our ignorance trying to determine or figure out or invent a proper and right way to worship you. We thank you that you have given to us as your children fatherly instruction 
so that we can enjoy you in our worship together, so that we can be instructed and built up in our faith. Forgive us, Father, for thinking lightly of the word that you have given to us in the commands of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The truthfulness of those commands being borne witness to by the work of your Spirit who gives us the assurance that these words are true. How foolish we are to part from them and to think that we can improve upon them or do better. So, Father, in our time this morning, we ask that you would give us a renewed appreciation for these gifts that you have given to the church that we refer to or know as baptism and the Lord's Supper, and that we would prize them and treasure them for all that they do as your gifts of grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So in our corporate worship, we perform ordinances. If you have a handout that was at the, the head of the aisles here, we've got three definitions at the, at the top of the notes. The first one is a definition of this fancy word ordinance. All of a sudden I just realized that there are like three bottles of water here and I don't know which one is mine. You see the sacrifices that goes into the ministry. So when we talk about an ordinance, we just use that term to refer to both baptism and the Lord's Supper. All right? But what we mean by an ordinance is itself derived from what we see in the Scriptures. So we would say something like this. This is not the only definition that you could give, or I should say this is not a perfect definition, but it's functional, it's useful for us. An ordinance is a ceremonial act that Christ has commanded his church to perform as visible signs of the saving truth of the gospel. An ordinance is a ceremonial act that Christ has commanded his church to perform as visible signs of the saving truth of the gospel. Now let me say some important things up front here before we even go to talk specifically about the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. If you are here and you are not a Christian, you are not familiar with these weird, strange things that Christians talk about with baptism and the Lord's Supper. This may seem very foreign to you, and it would be very easy to misunderstand or misinterpret what we say when we talk about the significance of these ceremonial acts. If you are here as a Christian, even if you've grown up in the church for a while, it is easy for us to imperceptibly slide one way or the other. Either we diminish the importance of the ordinances, we don't think of them as being essential to the life and worship of a church, we diminish their value, or we can begin to overinvest value into the ordinance as well to think that whatever it is that we lack in our spiritual life, well, we'll make up for that when it comes to communion time or something like that. Okay? Whether you are in Christ or not in Christ, whether you're a Christian or not, hear me on this. The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, has never and will never save anyone. Baptism does not save anyone. If you have been baptized, baptism did not save you. Participating, sharing in 
communion, the Lord's Supper, what we do the first Sunday of every month, as is our habit, that participation in the Lord's Supper does not save you, and in fact, it does not even necessarily make you more safe or more secure in your salvation. These things are signs that say we have been saved. So in the same way that, that wearing this ring does not make me married, but it shows that I have been married, similarly, baptism in the Lord's Supper does not save you but it does show and say that you have been saved. They are signs, not the substance. They are signs of the saving truth of the gospel. Right? Even that, right? The gospel. Do you know what the gospel is? The gospel, this old antiquated word that we get from the New Testament that means something like the good news. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs representing the saving truth of the good news. What good news? I'm glad you asked. Here it is. This is the good news. It starts with very bad news. The news is that there is a holy, infinite, all-wise, all-good, all-loving God who has created everything that we see around us, this entire cosmos, including each and every one of us. And because he is our creator and our king, we owe him and he deserves our worship and our thanks. But in rebellion and in sin, we have turned away from our creator and our king and have not given him the worship and the thanks that we ought to. And in our sin and rebellion against him, in our hatred for his rule and reign over us, for his claims on us, we rightly stand under his judgment. He stands in wrath, just and righteous wrath against sinful rebels. But, because of the great mercy and loving kindness of this holy God, he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life for us and then to stand in as our substitute to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. He suffered and died on the cross, receiving the just penalty of our sin so that that penalty would not need to fall on us. And God demonstrated that that sacrifice was sufficient and was satisfactory by raising him from the dead on the third day. He did not remain dead. He is alive. And by virtue of his resurrection, he now offers new resurrection life to any who would turn in repentance and faith to him so that we now can be reconciled to the God who once stood against us. And in that reconciliation, we can be adopted into his family and now not only call him our creator and king, but call him our father. That's the good news. And if that good news is new to you, or perhaps it's familiar to you, but it has never worked on your heart in such a way that you have become convinced of its truthfulness, know that the truth of God's Word itself is borne along, carried by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that for that person who hears the good news about Christ conquering sin and death on our behalf, anyone who would believe that to be true 
and would turn to Christ in repentance and faith, turning from their old life to find life in him, to follow him all the days of their lives, that good news becomes true for you. And it can never be taken away. So the ordinances are signs, ceremonial acts, that Christ himself has given to his redeemed people as signs of the saving truth of the gospel. So the two ordinances that Christ has given, the two ceremonial acts that his people perform together are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism. Again, not a perfect definition, but at least a functional one for our purposes. We could say that baptism is the immersion, that is, putting them under, completely under, the immersion of a believer in water as a sign of his new birth through the death and resurrection of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord's Supper is the church's communal act of eating broken bread and drinking wine. You see, I put that in wine. As a sign that our life is sustained by our crucified and risen Savior as we continue in covenant relationship with Him. So baptism is a sign that we have entered into new life with Christ. Communion, the Lord's Supper, is the sign that we're continuing in that new life with Christ. Christ commanded His people to do both. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me pause right here and stress that. Christ has commanded his people to baptize and to share in the Lord's Supper. Because Christ himself, the one who saves us, the one who says, if you follow me, you will live, you will never die. Because he is the one who has given us, shown us the path to life. As you continue to go through the New Testament and you see not just in the teaching of Christ, but in the teaching and the practice of the first church, the early church in Acts, the established, settled teaching of the apostles for the church in the New Testament letters, you begin to notice a couple things. One, you notice that there is no concept of an unbaptized Christian in the New Testament. To be a Christian and not be baptized was unheard of. It was the very first thing that you did when you entered into new life by faith in Christ. Baptism was the first thing that you did before you did anything else. And it also becomes evident... That not only was baptism firmly established from the very beginning, that anyone who followed Christ, anyone who professed faith in Him would be baptized, it's also readily apparent as you go through the New Testament that one of the things that the church did regularly together was to share the Lord's Supper. Both are imperatives. Both are commanded by Christ. So if you are a Christian and you have not been baptized, the question is, why have you not followed the command of the one that you claim has saved you? 
And I say this not in any way to, to be condemning or to put an, an, an unhealthy burden on you, but to simply say that if you actually are following Christ in faith and obedience, baptism is something that you will do. Even if you are not comfortable with it, you will obey Christ in baptism because more important than your comfort is your obedience to your Savior. And because you also know, even if you might not be able to articulate it, you also know that the Scriptures bear witness and you have seen in your own life that obedience to your Savior brings you joy. If you are a Christian and you do not regularly participate in the Lord's Supper with your brothers and sisters, you ought to ask yourself, why am I not obeying the command of my Lord and Savior? Do I think that this ordinance, this ceremonial act that we know as the Lord's Supper, do we think that it's optional? Do we think it's just busy work that the Lord has given us? Right? I want my people to be a strange and peculiar people, so I'll give them some peculiar things to do. Right? Eat a little wafer, drink a little tiny cup. Or do you say, even if I don't quite understand the full significance of this ceremonial act in communion, even if I may not always feel as if there is some tangible benefit or reward that comes in it, I know that he does not give his people any unnecessary instructions. I know that his words are good and true and life-giving. And even if I don't quite understand, because my Lord has said so, I will do it. But we want to go a step further than that. We don't just want to say, well, here, baptism and the Lord's Supper are clearly both represented in Scripture because Christ commanded it and the apostles taught it. This was a regular practice of the church. We want to press in a little bit further and, and ask a little bit more specifically the question, okay, even if we agreed that baptism and the Lord's Supper were essential parts of the Christian life, of our witness and testimony as Christians, why specifically would we do those things on Sunday morning when we gather together? If, I'm, if someone is going to be baptized, for example, why not just baptize them in the tub at home? Or after supper, when you're on vacation? What about the Lord's Supper? Why, why not just sit around the table with your wife and kids and have communion together? Right? We think that there is not only the command to observe these ceremonial acts for our good and for our benefit, but that God has uniquely given these acts to the church. So let let me say, give one summary answer. Why do the ordinances make up part of our gathered worship? Why do we do those things on Sunday morning together? Here is one answer, and we're going to focus on two parts to this one answer. The answer would be 
We observe the ordinances in our Sunday service because Christ has given the ordinances to the church. Not primarily to individuals or individual Christians, but he has given the ordinances to the church in order to build us up in our faith. So the reason that we observe baptism when we have opportunity on a Sunday morning or in a Sunday morning service and the reason that we observe communion together is because we believe that those ordinances have been given specifically to the church, to the assembled body of Christ's people, and that he has given those signs to the church, to the assembled congregation, as a means by which he builds us up in our faith. So let's start with the first part. Christ has given the ordinances to the church to build us up in our faith. At the very least, we won't spend time here, but at the very least it has to be mentioned that when Christ gives the command to baptize and to observe, commemorate his death and resurrection through the Lord's Supper, in both cases he's addressing a group of people. He's addressing his disciples who would become the apostles of the church and saying, this is what you, as my representatives will do from here on out with those who hear and respond to your message. So this is not personal, individualized instruction that's given, although we as individuals do obey when we do these things together, but it is given in a group setting and it's exercised in a way that it's meant to benefit the entire group. So turn now with me to 1 Corinthians Two passages, interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 12. Start in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and look with me at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? So who is doing the eating and the drinking? Me or we? We. And then notice verse 17, it becomes more explicit since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul assumes, if we can say it this way, I don't know if assumes, but he clearly indicates here in this passage that the Lord's Supper is meant to be taken by the church together. that the fact that there is one loaf of bread that they would have broken and handed out, passed out together, is itself significant, that that aspect of the sign means something. It means that all of us together feed on the very same source of life, the true bread of life, which is Christ. My part of Christ is no different than your part of Christ. 
I get no added benefit or blessing than what you yourself get. We all share in Christ together, and we make that known by all sharing in the sign of Christ's death and resurrection when we eat and drink in the Lord's Supper. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 about baptism. First Corinthians 12, look at verses 12 and 13. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Now, Paul will say in Romans 6, you don't need to turn there right now, but he will talk about those of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ. Right? Each one of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ, have been placed in Christ. But precisely because every one is placed into Christ and is united to Him, we are also then united to one another. Right? And it, you can't be united to Christ and not be united to His people, is the point. Or, as Jesus says in John 10... He says that he goes and he knows those who are his sheep and he calls them out by name. That's individual. But then he goes on to say, and I make them one flock. In the Lord's Supper, we give by the ceremonial act, by a sign, we give evidence or we bear witness to the fact that we believe we all have been made to feed on the life-giving power of Jesus Christ and that we all have equal and identical access to that life, which is why we eat the exact same meal together. But before we've even come to the table to eat together, we've entered into this faith through the sign of baptism as a way to say that not only have I been baptized into the life of Christ, not only have I been buried and raised again in Him, but by virtue of being united to Christ in death and resurrection, I have been united to all those who themselves have been united to Christ. We are persons who have been saved individually so that God can make persons part of a people. That is why we have the ordinances in our gathered worship together, because our witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ is far more potent, is far more visible and significant when we do it together than when we try to do it separately and on our own. But let me press even a little bit further and say it is not just simply that God has given these ordinances to the church, that the church herself participates in these ordinances as shared acts of worship, signifying their trust in the death and resurrection of Christ to save them from certain judgment and death. 
But God has given the ordinances to his people such that he intends for them to be kept together. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And look at verses 41 and 42. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Peter has concluded his sermon preaching, announcing that Christ was crucified for sin, has been raised to offer forgiveness to all those who would repent and believe. And then Luke gives us this summary statement after the people have responded to the preached word. Acts 2, 41, so then... Those who had received his word, that is the word that Peter preached, received it in the sense that they believed it, they acted on it, they responded to it. Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread... And to prayer. Now, back up with me, back to verse 41. So then those who had received his word, those who received and accepted the news of a crucified and risen Savior, those who had received it in faith, were what? Baptized. Why were they baptized? Why was that the very first thing that they did, having received and put their trust in the message about Jesus Christ? Why would that be the first thing? Because Christ commanded, this is the first thing that you do. Not sign a card, not walk an aisle, not even necessarily in the way that we typically think, make a profession of faith, although we do profess faith, we, we admit it, we confess it, but your public profession of faith in response to God's word is baptism. If you are a Christian who has not been baptized and you say, but, but it really doesn't matter, it really doesn't matter because I don't deny Christ I, I confess my faith in, in Christ. I profess him. Okay, great, fantastic. But understand, Christ himself has commanded you to make that public profession of your faith through the sign of baptism. Better than walking an aisle, better than raising a hand, better even than praying a prayer is being baptized if that baptism is being done in faith. Because that's what Christ has commanded his followers to do. And then notice, after those who had received the word, the word is preached, they believe the word on faith, the response, the faith response is baptism, Notice in verse 41, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to whom or to what? 
Exactly right. Added to the church. In other words, it's not that you are baptized and then you say, well, I'm glad I did that and check that box off. Appreciate the help, guys. I'll see you later. There is, because of the continuing nature, because of the connectedness of baptism, not just simply to Christ, but to Christ's people, there is the expectation in the New Testament that if you are baptized into Christ, you have then, by your baptism, confessed or professed that you are also united to His church. Listen, there are, there are a couple things that should be very, very disconcerting for us when you consider the significance and the weight of baptism and then the Lord's Supper in the way that oftentimes Christianity is preached and practiced, we'll just say in the U.S. I don't have enough knowledge about other countries and how they do it and some of their foibles, right? But for example, how many of you have heard people who go on an evangelistic campaign or they go on a missions trip or they do a backyard Bible club and they come back to give a report and they say that 10 people made professions of faith in Christ. Right? What, are, what, what do we do with that? All right, let me pause right here because I know I'm getting amped up. I, this, I'm not meaning to be hypercritical here, okay? I'm, I'm meaning to be instructive from God's word. A profession of faith means little to nothing if it does not work itself out in a transformed life. When we hear reports that 10 people profess faith in Christ, what we ought to ask immediately after that is, so does that mean that there were 10 baptisms? Because that's what Christ said we were to do when we professed our faith. We were to follow him in faith and obedience and be baptized. And then we should ask another question, and if those 10 people were baptized, does that mean that we have connected them with a local church where they can be cared for, where they can have Christian accountability and fellowship and be fed and nurtured? Because if a profession of faith, if hearing the word and responding to it does not result in a public act of baptism and does not result in being united not simply to Christ but to Christ's people, we're missing something. Is it any wonder then that there are so many false confessions of faith or false conversions because we have led people to believe that all you have to do is say a couple choice words or check off a box or raise a hand and that counts you've got your ticket out of jail you don't have to worry about judgment anymore and now that you don't have to worry about that you don't have to worry about anything that goes with the life of christ just go on your happy merry way that's not christianity Christianity, the faith, is seeing and treasuring Christ. It is hearing the words of Christ as words being spoken to you and your heart rejoicing in the fact that your Lord speaks to you through his word and rejoices in the fact 
that he would actually provide opportunities, ways, means for you to demonstrate, to act on your faith, to make it known, to share that joy with other people so that your joy in Christ can be maximized with the maximizing joy of your brothers and sisters. That is Christian life. So they respond to the word and they're baptized. By this sign, by this act, they are professing, they're saying that I have been buried with Christ and raised in new life. I'm now his and I belong to his people. They're added to the congregation, added to the number. But verse 42 those 3,000 who were added to the church, Acts 2.42, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to the breaking of bread, among other things. Meaning for the, that for these people who by faith and repentance entered into new life, they gave witness or testimony to that by baptism, and then they continued to give evidence or witness to this faith that they entered into by regularly sharing the Lord's Supper together, breaking bread as Christ had instructed his people to do in the upper room before his death and resurrection. A Christian who does not follow Christ in faith and obedience, in baptism and in the Lord's Supper is not a healthy Christian. And in some cases, we might even go so far as to say, though they appear to be a Christian, they may in fact not be a Christian at all. So you ask, do I, do I have to come on Sunday morning to sit and to listen to the preaching of God's Word? Do I have to be baptized? Do I have to take part in communion? Even the phrasing of that question raises red flags. What do you mean, do you have to? Do you have to hear Christ speak to you? As if that's a chore? As if it's a burden? Do you have to? Do you have to celebrate new life in Christ through baptism? Do you have to? Do you have to remind yourself of Christ's faithfulness to you, that he is keeping you another day, another week, another month, another year in your salvation? Do you have to? Celebrate that? What in the world is wrong with that question? Now listen, let me turn very quickly, right? Because if you're like me, you, you don't want to admit this to anyone, right? But in the privacy of your own thoughts, 
you're telling yourself right now, I don't know how enjoyable or how celebratory I am in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, right? My heart just does not necessarily ring or resonate. A lot of times I'm thinking, how quickly are we going to get this done so that we can get out to lunch? Okay. But even then, even then, don't you see? To celebrate the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is itself a way that you testify that I am not saved on the basis of how strong my heart and my affections are. I'm not saved, I'm not secure, based on how secure or how excited I am as I exercise my faith. I am safe and I am secure because Christ has saved me. And so even though my heart may be cold and sluggish, I will preach to my heart. And I will pray and acknowledge my sluggish, cold heart and say, God, you by your Son have given me this new heart that is not as lively and vibrant as it should be for the sake of your son. Because of your spirit that you have given me, would you awaken my heart and cause it to sing? So we keep these things together in our gathered worship because Christ has given these ordinances uniquely to the church. And he has given these ordinances uniquely to the church in order to build us up in our faith. Similar to the way that preaching makes the gospel audible, right? The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, make the gospel visible, right? So you, you may have heard us say before, either in a new members class or sometimes when, when we preach here, that when we gather together, right, we want everything to be word-centered, we want to pray the word, we want to sing the word, we want to preach the word, we want to see the word. They build us up in our faith. Baptism reminds us of the fact that God did not send his son to simply make us nice. He came to make us new. Nice, polite people go to hell. New people, recreated in the likeness of Christ, are spared that fate. Baptism reminds us that we are not just simply weak people who need a good life coach, who need a little extra help to add to our strength. Baptism tells us, no, we are not weak people who just need a little bit of extra help. We are dead people who need to be raised and resurrected. 
And every time we get to see someone baptized, there it is again. God, in Christ, by his Spirit, did a miracle. That person was dead. And now they're alive. Who can do that? Only God. The Lord's Supper preaches to us every time that we take it. It reminds us that Christ himself says that all who come to me will never be cast out. No matter how rotten your weeks have been, you come to the table and because of your union with Christ, you are not turned away from feeding on the life-giving nourishment of Christ by his spirit. He sits you down at the table again and he says, take and eat. You're reminded that Christ himself said that all who come to me, all who follow me, all who believe in me, they will never hunger and never thirst. That all the things that you mistakenly chase after to find satisfaction and contentment, and you're reminded again what a waste that is because I never, ever find myself full and satisfied. You're reminded that it's only Christ who gives that kind of satisfaction and contentment. And he's called you to himself again to say, come and eat. And it is a way as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup to say, just as I was placed into Christ by baptism, now Christ is in me through my continuing faith and repentance in him. He does not just give me new life, he keeps me alive. So both in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, these material, physical acts, these sign acts that we do, preaches the gospel to ourselves. It preaches the gospel to those who are in witness, who even though not permitted to partake in it themselves because these gifts are uniquely for those who have been united to Christ by faith, they still see and witness something of the privileged status of those who have been united to Christ and to one another. And then as we sit sharing in these things together, we're able to tell ourselves that as sure as I feel the water of this baptism, I know that I've been saved. As sure as I am that I actually see this bread in front of me, that I can smell this cup and taste it, that is how real Jesus Christ is. As sure as I am that I have been placed into the water and that I am consuming this food, that is how sure and certain I am that I have been placed into Christ and that I am secure in him all the days of my life until I finally stand before him to feast on the endless joys of reward and gifts of life in Jesus Christ. 
That's why we do the ordinances. That's why we ought to prize and guard the ordinances. That's why we want to lovingly and graciously insist on the ordinances that those who come to faith in Christ would make that public profession through the act of baptism. That they would be placed into a local church and that one of the ways that they continue to demonstrate or give evidence of their continuing faith in Christ is by sharing in the communal meal that God's people share together that we call the Lord's Supper. And all of that being done with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy because of how good God is to his people in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in your grace, in the gift of your Son, we thank you that we can even call you Father. That you are our Creator and King, our right ruler, and yet because of the work of your Son, we have been adopted into your family to retain the rights and the privileges of your children. that we no longer need to fear your judgment, that, but that we can be certain and sure of your affection and your care for us. We thank you that we know that we have your settled favor because the work of your son is settled and finished on our behalf. That he gave himself up in death, taking the punishment for our sin, and was raised again to new life, offering us eternal life as we turn to him in repentance and faith, and that those gifts, those promises, are made real and effective by the power of your Holy Spirit who works within us. Father, we ask that as you continue to grow your church here at Edgewood, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst to see and experience more clearly the truth and the reality of the gospel that we preach, of the faith that we confess, and that we would give high place and priority to these sign acts that our Savior has given to us in baptism in the Lord's Supper. We pray that through even the strangeness of those acts, that those who are on the outside looking in would be drawn in by an inexplicable attraction to your word and to your promises so that they would find life in Jesus Christ. Do this, Father, for your glory. Do it for the exaltation of your Son and for a demonstration of the power of your Spirit in our midst. Amen.